Tappers, what's up? It is the Tuesday edition of the Daily Tap. We are talking about why I would still take Drew Holiday over Chris Paul. Next, we will talk about who has the most pressure in Game 5, whether that's Kevin Durant or the Milwaukee Bucks as a collective unit. I think a case can be made for both. We will also talk about are the Brewers are the Cubs really that much better than the Brewers based on an article I saw. And yes, we probably won't talk about last night's Burr game because it was a 10-2 loss. Dan Vogelbach was really the only highlight of that one. But yeah, very ugly stuff from the Brewers. It, an interesting topic has arose uh, with the Kai not an interesting topic has sort of bubbled up to the surface with the success of the Phoenix Suns. So you see the Phoenix Suns, they are already into the Western Conference Finals. Every other series is at 2-2, but the Suns are already sitting at home, hanging out. They get to rest for basically, I think the game, I think game one for the Western Conference Finals could start as early as Sunday or it could start on Tuesday. So the Suns are at least going to get a week off. They might host game one if the Los Angeles Clippers beat the Utah Jazz. And so the Suns are kind of hanging out. And there's been a lot of talk and appreciation of what Chris Paul is doing. And I'm not going to be one to hate on Chris Paul. What he is doing is incredible. This is an awesome playoff renaissance for the 36-year-old. And there's been a lot of talk. Well, the mid-range, the mid-range is always there, and no one should give up on the mid-range. And Chris Paul is making it happen, and he's defying analytics and all that bullshit, which is something I did want to cover and didn't really get to it. That that whole thing is just classic old guys or classic old school dudes who just don't understand that you can have both. I do agree that a three-pointer is better than a mid-range shot, and you want to make sure that kind of a player has all that in his bag, and you'd rather him, if he was developing as a player, you'd rather him develop a three-point shot, and then I think try to work him back in. I think it's kind of simple coaching. It's like, if he can make, let's say he's good in the post, and then he Let's see what he can do in three. And if three is ugly, well, then let's move it to the mid-range. There's nothing wrong with learning a mid-range jumper. I think there are a lot of critics of Giannis who say, oh, he should have a mid-range jumper instead of a three-point shot. Sure, but that, that comes down to coaching and the analytics do not really favor that. And I do think there are guys where mid-range jumpers are part of their arsenal. Chris Middleton for the Bucks is definitely one of those players. And so is Chris Paul. It must be a Chris thing. I don't know, right? But that's this idea that the mid-range is dead is not really true. Because Chris Paul and Chris Middleton are two mid-range assassins. But back to the Paul, ver- Paul renaissance and how he's played is, you know, there are, yeah, that's part of the whole equation of why... People are just loving Chris Paul. And Chris Paul, I think you would say, is the star of the NBA playoffs. Now, the star of the NBA playoffs for the first two rounds isn't always the one who ends up being the main guy at the end of it. It's kind of like a bachelorette or a bachelor season if you watch those shows where somebody could start really hot. Like if you're watching the bachelorette right now, Greg, who kind of looks like Aaron Rodgers' brother. 
Um, not like Jordan Rodgers. He just looks like Aaron Rodgers. So, therefore, he could be a, a long-lost brother of Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Greg the Egg is starting out hot. Like, Greg looks like the winner. It's like, why do we even do the, the drama and everything else? Like, Greg looks like he has this thing on lock. And yet, sometimes that happens where it's it's a wrap from start in those reality shows. And then there are other situations where it starts that way, but it certainly doesn't end that way. So we'll, uh, we'll sort of see if Chris Paul has the ability to sort of carry this out. If he is able to stay healthy for four rounds, that has always been the bugaboo of Chris Paul. And I do agree with a lot of people that if he doesn't hurt his hamstring against that Warriors team, we could have looked at the Rockets in the NBA Finals with James Harden, with Chris Paul. And that talk about a crazy sports what if, who knows? But this is not really a Chris Paul appreciation. I I do appreciate what he's doing, but there there are some who believe that the Bucs should have got Chris Paul instead of Drew Holiday. That the Bucks should have got Chris Paul instead of Drew Holiday. Chris Paul wanted to come to Milwaukee. That was known. And that Milwaukee should have went with CP3 instead of Holiday. Respectfully, that is extremely short-sighted. That is extremely short-sighted and not really understanding what Drew Holiday brings to the Milwaukee Bucks. And understanding what the future of the Milwaukee Bucks looks like. Chris Paul is a short-term move. Even for Phoenix, it's a short-term move. Chris Paul could opt out after this year, by the way, and could decide to get even more money from, say, a team like New York, which has been always rumored. Or who knows, maybe the Los Angeles Lakers, maybe LeBron says, all right, we want to go with this big three of CP3, myself, and Anthony Davis. Chris Paul, a longtime friend of LeBron. So... Chris Paul could easily opt out, and it's a short-term idea, and Phoenix did not give up a ton for it because a lot of people thought the Chris Paul contract was too much. I know I was one of those people. I thought Chris Paul's contract for his age was ridiculous. I still do. I mean, yes, Chris Paul played 70 games this year. He only missed two games, but this idea that Chris Paul would be this total difference maker for the Milwaukee Bucks Misses on what Drew Holiday does. Yes, is Drew Holiday struggling this round of the playoffs? Sure. He has a little bit of Eric Bledsoe disease. It has not been good for Drew Holiday on the offensive side of the ball. But the man was just named first team all NBA defense. Chris Paul could not sniff that. One of the reasons why the Suns have been successful is that Chris Paul really hasn't had to guard anybody in the first two rounds. That is sort of the sneaky, underrated part of this and could get away with it come the Clippers series if they play Los Angeles, although Reggie Jackson has kind of had a renaissance in his own right uh, for Los Angeles. So Chris Paul hasn't had to guard anybody. And yes, Chris Paul's lack of defense, if he was on Milwaukee Bucks, could be made up by guys like Dante DiVincenzo, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Brooke Lopez, for that matter. Like All of those guys are supremely better defenders than Chris Paul. And Holiday just gives the Bucks such life on that side of the basketball. And he also is able to control on offense. Now, I don't think he's able to do as much offensively as I think I'd like. I think I do if you were to say what is one thing you would want 
the Bucks to apply that CP3 does that the Bucks don't do is Holiday kind of guiding the the start of the offense. Like I don't really like the Giannis led brings the ball down on the court, and I want to get to that part in a second. So I would much rather see Holiday sort of initiating the offense and letting the offense run through him and sort of being that point guard, being that captain, and then working with Giannis, working with Chris Middleton, even if the start of it is Holiday getting a screen from Giannis, Giannis then getting the ball, and then he initiates whether it's an ISO whether there's a cutter, whether there's a guy in the corner. Seth Parnell pointed out that the Bucks had many more assist chances from Giannis and Chris Middleton. So yeah, maybe there was a little less of that iso ball from Giannis, but I do agree with a lot of people that Giannis holds the ball far too long. And that was part of my fear with the Giannis, Chris Paul, or the Giannis and Chris Paul relationship. And I, I think there's a podcast back in like October when this was being talked about where I kind of, I kind of said like, look, Giannis is a, a guy who wants to control things. Giannis is a guy who is the leader in that arena, in that clubhouse. Like, you talk to guys who know things and. They tell you that Giannis is the personality of this team, that Giannis is the leader. And bringing in a guy like Chris Paul, who immediately demands respect, immediately demands that he is that number one guy, that he is the coach on the floor, I think would not work well with Giannis. He is too much of a of an alpha to with Giannis. That is two guys that would collide and they would just not work well together. I remember when the Jimmy Butler, yeah, yeah, there were some Jimmy Butler rumors. I don't know if they were to Milwaukee. I think this was before he got traded to Miami, right? And it's the same thing, right? Like you can't have two guys who expect to be the fucking man. That's just not going to work. It's like, it, it just, it, it's, it never does. If you're trying to take control of a situation, someone has to be a passive one of that. And there are no passive people in that equation. They just aren't. Like you look at how Chris Paul kind of controls a team and you look how Giannis controls the team and it's far different. Now, do I think the Bucs could have used some of Chris Paul's coaching on the floor and would have helped their team a lot? Yeah, I actually do. I, I think that Chris Paul's energy would definitely have parlayed the Bucks into some success. But again, the defense, the the short window, let's get to that in a second here, is all reasons why I would go a Holiday over Chris Paul. And I know that Holiday hasn't had the playoffs that Chris Paul's had. But that's not to say that, that he can't come through with a major series, whether it's down the stretch here or if the Bucks do advance. And the other thing is, is if the Bucks cannot win the NBA Finals this year, they have three more, three or four more chances with Giannis, Holiday, and Middleton. And they probably are going to do one more year, whether it's with a new coach or the same one, to see, hey, can we do this again? Or do we need to look at full-scale changes to say, all right, this, this group isn't going to stay together. They can't work. And the NBA is so quick to react versus kind of trusting the process, as we've heard so often with Philadelphia. But these guys have a large window open. I know Bucks fans don't want to hear that. Like that bothers Bucks fans, right? That the window is open. It's not closing anytime soon. 
So they don't have to win a title this year. I think we're all obsessed with it. I think we all want it. And if they did have Chris Paul, so if, if it was reversed and Chris Paul was on this team, they would have to win a title this year. They would, Or you could say maybe next year, but what if Paul opts out? Then what do you do? Then who do you look at as your next point guard? Holiday likely would have been traded. Denver was interested in him. I think Phoenix, before they got Chris Paul, was interested. So Drew Holiday would not be available. So you'd have to start over again at the point guard position. And that is dangerous, especially when you have a window that is wide open for Giannis and Chris Middleton. They That window would not be open if Chris Paul decided to leave. And that's that should be a real fear for Suns fans. If I was doing a Suns podcast, I would definitely have that yeah, but at the end where it's like, this could be our only run at it. Chris could opt out, try to make more money, which I don't blame him for trying one more swing at it and say, look, I still have it. I still believe that I can do this. And I, I do under I do get the idea of all of us, including the Bucks organization, to say. Chris Paul was too old to do something like this. And yeah, he's defying define logic. And we've seen it throughout this sort of year. And I always think that sports sometimes have themes, right? And the fact that Tom Brady won a Super Bowl, the fact that Phil Mickelson won a major at 50, that Helio Castro Neves won the Indy 500, shout out to my Indy fans, at 46, that maybe this is the year of the old guy. And that Chris Paul is going to come through this and win. And then he adds his name to that illustrious list of guys. It's real possible. But at the same time, there, there was no predicting that Chris Paul was going to sustain what he had done in Oklahoma City and in Houston before that. And also, too, just a note, Chris Paul has played a majority of games and that's really the first time he's done that since 2015 and 16 where he played 74 games and 82. And after two straight years of that, he had three straight years of injury. I'm not saying that that's going to be a correlation, but it, it's on the table, right? So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But I will always take Drew Holiday over Chris Paul. No matter what happens. If the Bucs lose the next two games, I'm still taking Drew Holiday. If the Suns win the NBA Finals, I'm still taking taking Drew Holiday. What I'm more pissed off about with the Suns run is not that Chris Paul... I don't have any regret on Chris Paul. I regret the fact the Bucs couldn't figure out how to use Torrey Craig. I think that's fucking ridiculous. The fact that Torrey Craig has become a vital part of the Phoenix bench... And the Bucs couldn't figure out how to get him on the court is a malpractice in coaching. To me, that is one of the biggest red marks on Bud's year when he's evaluated at the end of the year. How did you not figure out how to use Torrey Craig? We signed Torrey Craig. We thought he would have an ability to get on the floor. Why couldn't he get got on the floor for you? There was no reason. He just has, he loves Pat Connaughton. And then look, Pat Connaughton played so well and they've, and you could argue that because they have P.J. Tucker, you don't need a guy like Torrey Craig. I still would want more bench players than less bench players. And sure, maybe Torrey Craig was one too many. And they didn't need him. And they, they had too many guys with him. It comes down to Bryn Forbes, Bobby Portis, you know, all these other dudes. And, and 
Budenholzer's like, you want me to play starter minutes? I can't put all these bench guys in. So I don't know. Who knows? But I, I think Budenholzer kind of made it known he didn't want Torrey Craig playing, which was a mistake because I think Torrey Craig could have really helped this team. But, you know, it is what it is. And you have P.J. Tucker now. You probably won't have, wouldn't have P.J. Tucker if Torrey Craig had an established established role on this team moving on to tonight's game so if you're listening to this after tuesday you can kind of just skip right through this because this won't matter but that's why i kind of had a early topic that wasn't around game five you know that's that's the business right there sweetheart but with game five tonight in brooklyn um it will be a matchup between Kevin Durant versus the world. I think that will be how people will talk through this game. That Kevin Durant has a chance to sort of rewrite his legacy, if you will. I mean, maybe not that. That's a little strong. But Kevin Durant definitely has a way to silence the haters. Let's just put it that way, right? If Kevin Durant is able to win this game without Kyrie Irving, without James Harden, with a host of role players. It's basically Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, Jeff Green. That's kind of the three guys that you could rely on. Maybe Landry Shamit, maybe Mike James. But that's kind of it for Kevin Durant. But if Kevin Durant goes scorched earth, scores 40 or 50 points, the talk of Durant being the best player on the court overall, not just in this series, will get louder and louder. The fact that Durant would be able to carry his team without those main guys is a huge potential and a huge possibility, and it's on the table. Durant is that good. I think Durant will also be motivated and pissed off after a tough game four and in eight where you dealt with P.J. Tucker entirely in his grill. And I fully expect P.J. Tucker to get two quick fouls and will give Durant sort of that confidence to get going early on. So I think it's very much on the table that Kevin Durant could have this virtuoso performance that we've seen in in various NBA playoff games from the NBA greats. So does he have more pressure on him than the Milwaukee Bucks? I don't think so. I actually think a lot of the pressure is on the Milwaukee Bucks tonight. I hate to say it. I, I usually am pretty optimistic. I still am optimistic they win this game. Don't get me wrong. But I do think they have a lot of pressure going into this one because there's no Kyrie Irving. There is no James Harden. It is just Kevin Durant. And I would imagine if I'm Mike Budenholzer, what I would do is let Kevin Durant go off. Let Kevin Durant score 40 to 50 points and then just try to hunt everybody else on the court. Mike James is an awful defender. He's not good. You can get to the lane on him. Giannis, when he attacks Blake Griffin, can get into Blake's kitchen and either draw fouls on Blake or just make sure that he's in full attack mode. Chris Middleton can take advantage of who's ever on him. I do think Landry Shamit, pretty good defender. But they can all, they can win this game with Kevin Durant scoring 50 points. Kevin Durant can score 50 tonight and the Bucs can still win. Because if you shut off everybody else, you're going to win this basketball game. But I do think there is a good amount of pressure on this Bucks team because they know they have blood in the water. And sometimes people respond to that. Sometimes people respond to that and say, all right, we're going to blow these fuckers out. And we're going to take advantage of this series entirely. Or they crumble and they get tight. 
it's very important that the Bucks start off with a good first half. I'm not even saying first quarter because I've seen the Bucks have a good first quarter and then it all go to shit. They need to get off, get going early. And you started to see some of the three-point regression happen where the Bucks were actually hitting some outside shots. My dad always says the law of large average, law of large numbers, where you base everything averages out and that it will start evening itself out. And we're starting to see that with the three-point shooting. Will it happen in Brooklyn? I actually don't I don't think the Bucks like playing in Brooklyn. I don't think really any team does. Uh, you know, Brooklyn is the only playoff team that is undefeated at home. Oh no, Bucks are too. Yeah, the Bucks haven't Bucks and Brooklyn both have not lost at home. Which is a huge thing because they it's kind of like who's going to break first? Who is going to break the ice? Is it going to be Milwaukee tonight? And I think if the Bucks can sort of put it into, you know, get going early, that Brooklyn, I'm not saying they're going to quit, but it, they're going to think it's insurmountable. And if Milwaukee can get up early and get going quick, they're going to sort of knock Brooklyn off. But if Brooklyn starts believing, especially those role players, especially the Jeff Greens, Mike James of the world, then you have a problem. And you might have a game that goes down to the wire. And I don't want to be in a world where Kevin Durant has a chance to win win the game down the stretch because Kevin Durant is as good of a clutch player as we have in our in our in this sport not our sport like I'm play but no it's it's going to be a fascinating game it's going to be fascinating to see how they guard Durant it's going to be fascinating to see if the Bucks come out tight or they're able to sort of get this thing rolling We'll be interested to see if the 8.30 local start time affects anybody. Whether that affects the Bucks, whether that affects the Nets. That's a lot later. It's an hour later, and I know it's just an hour, but who knows? Does that play into anything from a body clock perspective? We'll see. Um, and what does Steve Nash do? I actually think, and I said this, and I don't think a lot of people talked about it because we were all worried about Kyrie's injury, and we were... We, we ignored everything else. I talked about that a little bit yesterday. But Steve Nash got tight. Like, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but Steve Nash played played Jeff Green 27 minutes. He played Blake Griffin 25. He kept Blake on the bench for most of the second half. A lot of people thought Blake was hurt. Steve Nash, while a first-year coach, while has done a lot, this is the first time he's had real adversity. So I'll be very curious to see if Steve Nash is able to to sort of right this ship and sort of make this happen for the Nets. And if not, I think it's everything we kind of said at the, the open where or beginning of the series where Mike Boonholzer might be the best coach left in, in the Eastern Conference, which it sounds crazy, but it's true. And it, it, it could be the case because I don't think he's been outcoached by Steve Nash. In fact, I think Mike Boonholzer has done a pretty good job making adjustments in the last two games. We'll see what happens in game five. I'm not yet nervous about it, um, but I know as the day goes on, I will be more nervous about it. I've thought about it a lot. Um, so we'll be back tonight um, to react. I don't know if I'm going to be going over to Mitch's. Uh, Mitch and I talked about getting together for this game, uh, but then the, uh, the the start time moved to 7.30, and that is tough on your boy Mitzi, who has a early start time to his work day. 
All right, let's wrap this thing up with the Milwaukee Brewers, and then we will head out of here. So it was interesting for the Milwaukee Brewers. They're red hot, as you know. They did lose to Cincinnati Reds, so they've lost the game. That sucks. Got to start a new winning streak. The first time I think the Brewers have lost the first game of a series, I think since that Cincinnati series back on the 21st of May. So it's been a while since the Brewers have lost a opening series, but it does happen, right? It's baseball. The Cubs also lost, so the Brewers and Cubs are still deadlocked at the top of the NL Central. The uh, ESPN put out an article yesterday basically looking at who, what moves do the respective teams need to make, who should be buyers, who should be sellers, all this stuff. And Bradford Doolittle noted that the Cubs are currently the sixth best team, the, the a team that is going for it. And now the Brewers, with the same record, are 13th and are in the, we need more data on the Brewers. And they have a power rating, whatever the fuck that means, that has the Cubs at 91, while the Brewers at 84. And they project the Brewers to have a 88 88 wins while the Cubs are projected for 94 wins. Both the Cubs and Brewers are successful against the Dodgers and Padres, who are kind of the two teams that are at the top of the NL. Uh, the Brewers have yet to play the San Francisco Giants, who are also a surprise team thus far. And the Brewers are, and the Cubs are 1-3 against the Giants. They played them in San Francisco a week ago. So this idea that the cub are the Cubs really that much better though than the Brewers, I don't, I don't, I just don't see it. I think the Cubs are good. Like I, I fully acknowledge that the Cubs have a pretty good team, and that the Cubs are kind of doing this last dance sort of thing, right? We talked about this on a tapping the keg a few weeks ago that the Cubs know that the ownership wants to kind of start over. The ownership is like we have too much money. Doesn't sound like they want to re-sign Chris Bryant. It Anthony Rizzo's extension is kind of on on edge because Rizzo doesn't necessarily want to come back if it doesn't mean Chris Bryant is coming back. There's always been talks of trading Javi Baez, Wilson Contreras. All of those guys have had their names mentioned in trade talks over the last year. So the Cubs have sort of done this last dance, if you will, thinking that it might be the end. It might be the last time that everybody is together. And I, I don't know if they're going to A, make some moves, or B, if this is sustainable. We talked about their schedule. It gets really tough. They lost to the Mets today. They're, they have a long road trip. They're going to be playing the Brewers in a few weeks here, which I think will be a knockdown, drag them out first big series of the baseball season. Like That's going to be the measuring stick. And that's going to be kind of how we start, where... These two teams can can sort of look like if they're going to be playing it down the wire or if one looks much better than the other. I mean, the Brewers have ha had their luck with the Cubs early on this season, but I would argue the Cubs are a much different team. But I'd also argue the Brewers are, are different. The Brewers have got going on offense. The Brewers have really found themselves. Yes, last night wasn't great, only scoring two runs, but Milwaukee has been a juggernaut on offense really since the start of June. And Dan Vogelbach's red hot. You've had really good production, I think, out of Luis Urias. I think there's been great, 
Great things happening with Avisail Garcia and Omar Narvaez. I think both are all-stars, even though I don't think they'll get the credit nationally because not a lot of people are watching the Milwaukee Brewers. Christian Yelich has been red hot of late. And then their pitching staff has been incredible. And Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta, Corbin Burns are as good of a one, one, two, three punch as it's going to get. If you look at the Cubs starting rotation, it is nothing compared to that. And it, it, it pales in comparison. If you're going to do tail of the tape, the Brewers pitching staff is so much better than what the Cubs are bringing out. While the Cubs starting pitching isn't that great, their bullpen is very successful. They have the second best bullpen in all of baseball thus far with a 259 ERA. They have 21 saves. They've done really well. Um, Their teams are averaging only 192 against the Cubs bullpen. That leads baseball. They've had some very successful uh, pitchers out of that Cubs bullpen. And the Brewers right now, ERA-wise, rate, I think they're 18th right now in baseball. Yeah, they're 17th. And really, that to me is a combination of things. And I don't think the Brewers' bullpen is that bad. And you could look at it at a surface level and say, well, okay. So the, the only thing the Brewers really have in the Cubs is starting pitching. I don't think that's true. I think it's that you just you have to look at individuals here. Josh Hader is as good of a closer as there is. Devin Williams has had some bad moments this year, but he's still a pretty solid setup guy. Brad Boxberger's had a really good, really good year. If you get anything out of Hunter Strickland, there you go. You have basically a four-man Kansas City Royals style of rotation where you can use your starting pitchers for for five. Strickland six, Boxberger seven, Williams eight, Hayter nine. Now, now will they do that? Probably not. With how good their starting pitching is, I think you'll it'll be more likely you would hope Woodruff, Peralta, or Burns can go into the seventh inning, and then it's just Williams and Hayter to finish off whatever team you're playing. So I'm not necessarily thinking that it's flawed to have the Brewers bullpen at 17. I think. They can compete with the Cubs bullpen any day of the week. And same with the offense. I think the offense has got itself going. Now the Cubs have got an injection into their offense with Patrick Wisdom, who's kind of came out of nowhere. Um, Very Cardinals-esque, right? Patrick Wisdom just becoming this all-star out of the blue. And you have, so they do have that. But the Brewers have seen some of that too with the Tyrone Taylor and you know, I, I don't think anyone expected Luis Urias to kind of have the season that he's had thus far. You've gotten some really nice things out of Daniel Vogelbach. And and yeah, so they, they do, I think they're just neck and neck. I don't think they're much better. I think it's more of a neck and neck thing. And that if you just start looking at guy to guy, it ends up kind of working itself out like that. And it'll be curious to see if this last dance Cubs team actually does something at the deadline. Because if they really do, that's, I think, how we'll know, honestly. I think we'll know if the Cubs are really serious about this kind of reset. If they make no moves at the deadline, or let's say they get maybe just a reliever and a throw-in deal or something like that, then I think we can officially say this is the last year of of this quote-unquote Cubs run. And then, if the, and then the Brewers could end up taking them over. You know, there's been some thought that could you bring Jesus Aguilar back? Saw that in Doolittle's piece. I, I really don't hate that idea. I'll be honest. 
the idea of bringing Jesus Aguilar back and putting him in this clubhouse, which is already vibrant, would be amazing. And I think Jesus would fit right in and he'd give the Brewers a lot more power in the offense. And if you could hit, you could stack basically Aguilar, Yelich, Garcia. I mean, look out, right? That, that to me is deadly. That is that seems very deadly. But Dan Vogelbach's given the Brewers some really good good at bats recently. Um, but it's we know it's not sustainable. So we'll see what the Brewers do tonight. I don't think a lot of eyes will be on them. All eyes will be on the Milwaukee Bucks as they play the Brooklyn Nets. So we'll be back tomorrow to talk Bucks Nets. I'm sure we'll mention a little bit of Brewers. And if anything else comes through, we'll make sure to talk about it as we always do. All right, take care, guys. Have yourself a great Tuesday. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye.